It's Friday on Today in Ohio. We're wrapping up a week of news on the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And we'll be talking about Jim Jordan because, as we said on Monday, it's Jim Jordan week. Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Israel was invaded by Hamas. What are the feats of gymnastic logic that politicians like J.D. Vance and Jim Jordan are using to argue that the U.S. should support one but not the other with aid? And did Jim Jordan really say he did not know what the goal is in Ukraine? I mean, what is the goal of any country when it's invaded? Right. Layla. Yeah, right. Exactly. And yes, he did say that. So President Biden, during a visit to Israel, came out strongly in their support, promised an unprecedented support package to come to Israel's defense. The Senate is expected to vote soon on a bipartisan resolution that states the Senate stands firmly with Israel and firmly against Hamas. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that after it passes a resolution, the Senate will follow up with a real swift, decisive action and resources. Many Republicans, including Vance and Ohio's finest Jim Jordan, support aid to Israel. But they're, meanwhile, very skeptical of sending more money to Ukraine. Vance co-authored a an opinion piece in The Hill with Kevin Roberts, who heads the conservative heritage foundation think tank. And in it, they cautioned against using the crisis in Israel as what they said, what they called a plan B to get support for President Biden's Ukraine funding request. They say that instead of holding up aid to Israel for additional Ukraine funding, Congress should give that situation in Israel the separate debate and vote that it deserves. They argue that Israel is a democratic, historic U.S. partner and a key ally in the Middle East, whereas Ukraine is still shedding Soviet-era corruption and is (laughs) not a NATO partner. Also, they say Israel's neighbors aren't likely to help the war effort, and the U.S. is likely to be its only source of aid. So as you pointed out, Chris, Jim Jordan did indeed say he doesn't know what the objective is of Ukraine. <laughs> it's and- to repel the invader. What's the objective? Right. I mean, it's just, it's an absurdity. Look, these guys got caught, right? Instead of doing the right thing on Ukraine, which this is, you know, we're going back to World War II times. You don't appease an invader. I mean, Russia's doing what Germany did. You can't allow that to stand. But- These guys have decided to make it a political issue rather than do the right thing. Let's play politics with it. And then Israel gets invaded and they're in a really tight spot. The most ridiculous thing is trying to parse it to say, let's well, this is completely different. No, it's not different at all. A country that is a friend has been invaded by an aggressor. We should help in both cases because world peace is important. And once countries think they can start invading willy nilly, we're all in trouble. They look terrible here. But, you know, that's Vance. Vance is a fire starter. He's just like Donald Trump. I'll say anything to get a headline. Ooh, if I can try and make Biden look bad by coming out against Ukraine aid, I'll do that. Forget right and wrong. But because Israel is such a popular issue, they can't say the same thing with Israel. So they come up with this ridiculous set of statements. But to say I don't know what the the aim is in Ukraine, it's just he can't be that dumb. Right. I thought particularly (laughs) icky is the argument that Ukraine has wealthy neighbors that could help them. (laughs) And in in the Middle East, uh, Israel has fewer allies. So I I just thought, you know, that's a gross way to to split hairs here and decide which which is going to get U.S. support. 
um, yeah. <laughs> we are seeing so many examples in recent weeks of the fringe of the Republican Party really cooking itself. We've seen it in Ohio with issue one and some of the other shenanigans that Matt Huffman has orchestrated. We're seeing it in Washington. The Republicans cannot come up with a House speaker because they are so horribly broken. And we're seeing it here. You can't say we, we must defend Israel, but we shouldn't defend Ukraine. There is no way you can make that case. There's nothing to back it up. And here they are standing before the Fox News cameras saying exactly that. I, I'm wondering, you know, Ukraine was the popular cause. Everyone was mm-hmm. behind. How did how did this change? What because they think shifted? they think they can create a polarization issue. It's if Biden is supporting Ukraine, I'm not going to do it because I'm against Biden. It doesn't matter what's right. It doesn't matter that you have to stop aggression in any form. They're doing it just to get political points. So they've all been on Fox News and the conservative media saying harumph, harumph, no aid to Ukraine. I can't see Ukraine from my backyard. It's <laughs> idiotic statements. Mm-hmm. And, but then Israel happens and they are stuck. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 the ridiculous thing is they're trying to parse it. You can't parse it. We should be helping in both cases. This is bad in both cases. But it tells you everything about Vance and Jordan. They don't care about doing the right thing. They just care about party nonsense. Vance is turning out to be a disaster as a senator. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The battle over legalizing abortion has been one of the two big news stories of late summer and early fall, with the people fighting it telling a whole lot of mistruths. Might one reason be, that, for their ridiculous claims, be that they don't have enough money to get a real message out? What do we know about the campaign spending, Laura? Well, the side that's trying to get you to vote, I've got to think about this, can you vote no, are spending half as much money as the yes side. And that's since September 6th, the groups that are supporting state issue one, they're spending $9.3 million on TV and radio ads. That's twice as much as the $4.6 million spent by the no side. And that's according to a Republican consultant who tracks the political ad spending. Republican Governor Mike DeWine is definitely in the no camp. He's gotten hands-on in this effort to defeat the abortion amendment, is now trying to you know, say he's they're the underdog, they're the good guys. He he immediately brought this up when he was asked earlier this week about thoughts on how the campaign is going. He said, "Look, we'd like to have more money." Uh, he's hosted fundraisers. He's recorded a TV commercial with his wife for the anti-issue one campaign. But I think we're really going to see these millions of dollars on ads ramp up as we go into the final weeks of the election. And it won't matter because people made up their minds. The bogus thing, the the theme that they've settled on is this goes too far. It doesn't go too far. It basically makes a health issue, an issue between a doctor and patient, but they've got nothing. They, They know that Ohioans largely favor abortion. They know that people have made their minds up, and so they keep trying to whittle away with total BS. I mean, this doesn't go too far. That's an artificial argument that is suddenly what they're trying to say. This is too far for everybody. It's Even if you're pro, it's too far. And that depends. They they have this idea that, well, abortion is legal in the state of Ohio anyway, right, which is only there on a technicality because of a judge. So yeah, they're trying, I feel like they're just trying to confuse everyone in part because of the issue one in August, in part because of the name of pro protect women, Ohio, in part because I don't know, I feel like there's just so much nonsense being spewed that, you know, protect, protect parental rights. People are like, wait, which, which way am I supposed to vote if I want abortion? So if you, I, I feel well, like there's it, some mixed 
you know, they're trying to mix people up. And there's a concurrent theme running here, and it showed up when Fran DeWine next to her husband says that this means abortions can be done at any time up until birth. So that's a concurrent theme that they're leaning on as well. Which is not actually true. I mean, it says 22 or 23 weeks. It's the viability. And only in the case of an extreme you know, issue, consulting with a doctor, would it be legal after? I don't think we're going to see eight-month abortions. That doesn't happen. Well, the other thing we know is Ohioans aren't going to be bamboozled. They weren't bamboozled on issue one in August. They're not going to be bamboozled here. I think Ohioans actually showed they resented the Frank LaRose lies about the issue one in August. I think people were annoyed that their leaders were doing such dastardly deeds. And the same thing's going to happen here. People made their minds up on this a long time ago, and they're they're flailing away trying to get ground. I was... I, I was disappointed in Mike DeWine and some of the things that he said, because he's peddling some of the mistruths about this thing. I just don't think they're landing. I don't think any amount of TV time is going to matter. It doesn't matter how much money is spent. When people vote, they know how they're going to vote on this one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Cleveland Museum of Art is not sitting idly by while a New York prosecutor tries to take one of the museum's most famous sculptures Lisa, what's the latest chapter in this battle, which has caught some national and even international attention? Yeah, the Cleveland Museum of Art has come out swinging. They have filed a suit against Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg over the seizure of a $20 million draped male figure headless statue. They say that the suit seeks declaration that the museum is the rightful owner. They say they legally acquired it in 1986 from a New York City art gallery for $1.85 million. Museum spokesman Todd Messick says, we take provenance issues very seriously. He said that Bragg's evidence on this statue has fallen short of per- persuasive proof that the statue was stolen from Turkey, as claimed. Turkey, they say, has also never tried to claim it, although officials in Turkey have claimed that there's new evidence uh, just before the seizure occurred. Um, the district attorney's investigation says the suit relied on studies that say that the statue is Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius, but the museum consulted experts who believe it's the statue of a Greek philosopher, so they really don't even know who it is, according to them. Um, the Cleveland Museum also points to their voluntary release of dozens of other works that were proven to be looted, and they you know, released them to D.A. Bragg. And they say sometimes Bragg gets it right because they have filed suit for like several thousand pieces in New York, you know, trying to repatriate them. They said sometimes Bragg gets it right, but this time isn't one of them. Well, it seems like the New York prosecutor's office has decided it's a crusader to save the world's antiquities and do the right thing. But it seems like they're taking shortcuts. If this lawsuit is to be believed, they don't have the evidence. They cannot show where this statue actually came from. So then they shouldn't be trying to send it back to this place, which is what the museum's doing. And what, what this has pointed out is the prosecutor's office is using kind of the the its power to do shortcuts, to say, yeah, we want it back. We want to give it back. And it leaves museums like this one, their only route is to go to civil court and say, look, we need an evidentiary standard here. We have evidence that we own this. There is no evidence 
that it was looted. There is no evidence of where it actually came from, and he shouldn't be allowed to take it based on such specious evidence. It's fascinating how this is breaking down. It really is. And and I kind of have to give the museum credit for, you know, doing, taking a stand. I mean, like I said, you know, they're, this is one of the top five museums in the country. They are very, you know, very cautious about what they do with pieces. And if they do have pieces that do have a questionable provenance, they say that in the little placard next to the piece in the museum. So, and, you know, contrast this with Oberlin earlier this week, their museum gave up a 1911 drawing from a a V&E guy that they said was, you know, looted by the Nazis and they're going to the families and the family, the descendants are getting these drawings, which are going to be auctioned off, which will maybe disappear in private collections. But what's wrong with this picture is that the New York office has appointed itself the hero of this story. Mm-hmm. If, if the Justice Department believes this is a problem, then it ought to assign a special prosecutor in D.C. to make this their project. Why does some guy in New York unilaterally decide I'm going to be the arbiter of what's right and wrong? And so I think the museum has taken a really fascinating, strong stand. And unless mm-hmm. New York can prove it, they ought to stop. And really, the Justice Department ought to tell the New York prosecutor, this isn't your job necessarily. We'll take it from here. Interesting story. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com. And I believe Steve Litt, who is an expert on these matters, will have a follow-up story with some perspective. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Jim Jordan infuriated his fellow fringe right members of Congress Thursday with the way he turned tail and ran from his battle to be House Speaker. What's the maneuver that had his most ardent supporters so boiling mad that he immediately abandoned it and had a fellow Ohio Congressman Dave Joyce play a key role in it? Laura. Good Lord, this is a cluster. If anybody's watching what's going on, Jim Jordan already had a press conference this morning. He's calling for a third vote at 10 o'clock today. But this was after he decided that they could empower the temporary speaker, Representative Patrick McHenry, because they could actually get something done. They've been more than two weeks without a speaker. They can't do anything. And they thought, well, you know, maybe we should actually govern. That's why people send us to D.C. But no, that got a big pushback. Dave Joyce had been a big proponent of creating more power for the speaker pro temp role. And uh, Dave Joyce has also voted for Jim Jordan for speaker. So, But right now, there's no speaker, there's no power, and nothing is getting done. Look, we're supposed to have a speaker. The, the, yes. the dodge they were creating was basically an admission that we suck. We can't even do our jobs, so we're going to create this false move to, to continue. When really what Dave Joyce and his fellow moderates should do is reach across the aisle. It's amazing to me they won't do that. They're all in Congress together. They're all supposed to move the country forward. If they went to the Democrats and said, look, who would you, who would you accept? Who on the Republican side would you accept? We're the majority. It has to be a Republican. Can we work together and name somebody and get all these clowns out of the picture? But no, they're not. They look for this false dodge. Jordan got behind it because he doesn't have the support. His bullying tactics are infuriating people. All right. the tactics that he's used... As the committee chair, bullying the hell out of people, he tried to use that to become speaker. And there's anger now. They're like, no way I'm going to turn back and vote for you, you bum. He's toast. And Congress is at a standstill. It's amazing. 
It is. And Matt Gates is speaking up for Jordan. I mean, just the guy you want speaking up for for your congressman from Ohio. It just it it does seem like we talked about this the last time, right? When McCarthy took what, 15 votes to get elected, you had the same thought. Why don't they pick someone who Everybody, you know, the majority of moderates, the regular people can get behind. But that doesn't seem to be the point of government, either in the state house here in Ohio or in D.C. I've said this, I don't know how many times on the podcast, but it's party over people. They are sticking up for their party. They are sticking up for the people who give them a lot of money and what they call their principles rather than getting anything done and interacting with their fellow Congress people from a different party. I have heard from a bunch of people based on what we said about uh, Dave Joyce who are just so fed up with this guy. And they looked at his move to empower the pro tem as just a lily-livered Dave Joyce move instead of doing the right thing, instead of leading, coming up with a speaker that can lead that house with votes from both parties. And they're just sick of him. If he gets an opponent, he could be in trouble. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The proponents of participatory budgeting in Cleveland are all about empowering people in the neighborhoods to have a voice in how their taxes are spent. So is it a surprise that the signature group representing the city's neighborhoods has come out against it this week, Layla? I don't know how surprising this is, really. But uh, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, which serves as the umbrella organization for community development in Cleveland, and it works closely with the city's 20-some neighborhood-based community development corporations. And they are echoing what Mayor Justin Bibb has been saying. They're not opposed to the concept of participatory budgeting, but this particular proposal, which would change the charter to forevermore force the city to commit 2% of the city's general fund each year to the participatory budgeting exercise is just too extreme, is what CNP is saying. That's about $14 million every year that would go into projects that community members get to nominate and vote upon, even when times are tough for the city and they might not have $14 million to spare. Specifically, though, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress's viewpoint is that This would reduce the work that CDCs do with taxpayer money related to housing, economic development, and neighborhood revitalization. They believe that it would also make it more difficult to connect CDCs and residents with resources that their neighborhoods need. Much of the work of Cleveland CDCs is funded by City Hall. For decades, the city has used a share of its federal block grant money to pay for CDC staff and operations. But in some cities where participatory budgeting has been adopted, they have redirected that block grant money away from the CDCs and to these people's budgets. And that would cost the CDCs dearly. And Cleveland Neighborhood Progress argues that the CDCs already do the kind of deep neighborhood engagement that participatory budgeting is claiming it would bring to Cleveland. So they're saying that this whole thing is unnecessary and would actually be uh, quite detrimental to the city, to the CDCs, to the neighborhoods. Well, we should point out some CDCs do that. Some do it great. I mean, you got the Broadway Slavic Village. You've got some, the Detroit group. They're they're great. They've got a long history. Sure, Ohio some City CDCs, Tremont like, West. Yeah, the, yeah. But remember are, Ken Johnson's CDC? Buckeye. It was completely corrupt. <laughs> yes. So, so I'm you know when Neighborhood Progress does her rump for rump, the CDCs are great. Yeah, some are great. Some are a nightmare. This just keeps coming back like all of our systems are failing. So let's create another system. 
I mean, you know, city council is elected from the wards. They all represent individual wards and they're supposed to serve the residents with their budgeting, but residents feel like they're left out. The CDCs were created to make sure there were legitimate neighborhood groups put together to represent the neighborhood interests. But there's a feeling the neighborhoods are suffering. So we're going to create yet another device it gets back to we keep electing the wrong people. The systems are in place to do this. We just keep electing the Ken Johnsons. That's true. But, you know, the proponents of participatory budgeting say that if CNP's arguments were valid, if they were really doing the good work on behalf of the residents, similar to what you said, that there are some really terrible CDCs out there, we wouldn't see such a despondent electorate. Most people have given up on trying to make their voice heard because the systems we have in place have failed them so miserably. <laughs> and what do you do then? You okay. try to take it back. I mean, it's similar to what we saw with the the uh, Community Police Commission. That was the the citizens' attempt to wrangle control over a system that they had that they viewed as being a complete failure. And that's working so well. Look, <laughs> yeah. you oh, yeah. you covered City Hall. I covered City Hall. What do you think the odds are? that the people who get involved in participatory budgeting will do the right thing based on everything you know about the history of City Hall. I mean, if the CDCs don't work, if the council doesn't work, if the police commission is such a disaster as it's been so far, what on earth would give you any confidence that the people that got involved in participatory budgeting would do any better? I think what we'll see is is what we have seen happen in other communities where they've tried this experiment is that the people who do become involved in participatory budgeting, it's a slim group minority of people. And they're the people who are most often wealthier. Uh, a lot of them are retirees. They have time to devote to this exercise. You're not going to see a lot of the people who are disenfranchised get involved in this. And that right. and that is really a failure of this right. system because it's that's what they idea. claim. That's what they claim this will achieve is bringing yeah. in the disenfranchised. And I just don't see that happening. No. It's going to be a tiny sliver of Clevelanders who actually and then you're going to increase the inequity because those are the people whose projects are going to be realized. And we, we got to get rid of one party rule in this town. I think just like we need to get rid of it in Columbus, it's that we just do not have balance. And so we, you know, we have bad people that are in office. I mean, really, you want to have a say in the budget? Run for city council. But because of the way the party system is, it's very hard to do. You know, I do want to say one thing. Molly Martin, who is one of the key voices behind participatory budgeting, she pointed out in this story that. If Cleveland Neighborhood Progress were so concerned about losing city services on account of participatory budgeting, they should care more about how much money gets pumped into pro sports stadiums around here. And that is one of the best points that that these folks have brought up. I think that's a dodge. I mean, the the sports stadiums have an economic development value to the city, and it's not an either-or. That's 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 been used as a cheap argument my entire time in Cleveland, and you cannot argue that the arena is not a gigantic economic development generator for the city. All right, Back, I'm going to hold you to that statement the next time it, they come up and ask no, for the, money, and you're going to say, let no, them the leave. Brown Stadium. The Brown Stadium is the one because it's used eight nights a year. The team stinks. The owners have not been good stewards. You know, they support every political cause that's counter to what Cleveland wants. So when they come forward looking for their 
hundreds of millions. Sure. That's going to be a great debate. But I think Justin that's the Bib- stadium that the, that Cleveland owns. That's the really yeah, the one we're talking about here. But but that I think Justin Bibb knows who his constituents are, and so I think he's probably negotiating a hard deal on this. We'll see. I think we'll get information about this one soon. But the you you have a hard time arguing that the Brown Stadium is an economic generator for anybody except the Haslam's. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Should we be concerned about the person Dave Yost is championing for Ohio Solicitor General, Lisa? Well, there's a little whiff of MAGA about this guy. Uh, The new Solicitor General announced by Attorney General Dave Yost earlier this week is Elliot Geyser. He's replacing outgoing Solicitor General Ben Flowers. Geyser is currently an attorney at Jones Day in Columbus. He's an Ohio native. He's a former law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. And in 2020, he was an attorney for the Trump re-election campaign, focusing on election integrity issues leading up to the election. His name has come up multiple times in testimony before the select committee probing the January 6th Capitol attacks. And in that testimony, former White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany says that she communicated with Geyser several times about challenging President Joe Biden's win. She said that he mentioned in passing that Vice President Mike Pence could refuse electors in certain states. She said, though, in her testimony that it wasn't legal advice, but it was information for her to use in TV interviews. But she said that Geyser is the one that I trusted the most for constitutional law. Further, Geyser said he drafted a speech blaming mail-in ballot decisions made by the Pennsylvania Secretary of State for pervasive voter fraud. And actually, Attorney General Dave Yost weighed in on that. He asked the Pennsylvania Supreme Court to overturn the Secretary of State's ruling that ballots arriving up to three days after the election should be counted. Now, in praising Geyser, Yost says he's a master of ironclad legal arguments rooted in originalist principles and constitutional restraint. Geyser, for his part, says he's eager to stand up for Ohioans consistent with constitutional principles of federalism and rule of law. And can you count the buzzwords in there? Well, look, you can argue that what Pennsylvania did crossed the line. They changed the rules mid-election. They did it in part because of COVID and what COVID did to the whole election process. What you can't do is say there was pervasive fraud. That's just not true. So I think it's very troubling that our solicitor general is somebody that was pushing the narrative that there was pervasive fraud because there is no evidence of that. And for that alone, we shouldn't have him as solicitor general. It's a bad move by Dave Yost. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With anecdotal reports that people are showing up to get the new COVID vaccine, you'd think we'd continue the downward trend we've seen over the past month in cases. Layla, do we have another uh uh-oh moment? I think we do. The the Ohio Department of Health reported Thursday that case numbers increased from 4,997 last week to 5,506. So it's a tiny uptick. But as you said, I mean, we should be seeing numbers falling if the vaccine is as effective on the current variant as we've been told, right? So the total COVID-19 case count since early 2020 in Ohio has now reached 3,537,570. There were 221 Ohioans newly hospitalized in the past week, raising the total since the beginning of COVID-19 in 2020 to 143,627. So yes, the numbers appear to be 
on the rise despite the release of this latest vaccine and and what we hear, lots of people going to get it. Yeah, I know so many people that have had COVID in the last two months that it feels like we're at the height because I did not know that many people were getting COVID before. We've got it in our newsroom again. Um, So it does feel like we're at a at a dicey point. I don't know. I hope people get the vaccine in larger numbers. You're listening to Today in Ohio. A good bit of the debate over legalizing marijuana in Ohio has been about what it might mean for children. But Lisa, there's another drug that is affecting children, it turns out. What's the alarming statistic released this week? And the drug is nicotine. And the Ohio Department of Health statistics up through September of this year found that 263 children aged five and younger were reported to the Poison Control Center for poisoning from nicotine vape pens. There were 300 in all of last year, so we may even catch up or surpass that before the end of the year. And he says exposure to, you know, vape pens has almost tripled since 2015 across all age groups. You can, you know, uh, the kids that were called into the poison control center, they were exposed either from smoking the vape pen or just touching it. So ODH director, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff says he's raising the alarm that liquid e-cigarettes are an increasing risk for young children. They need to be stored far away and out of sight and don't put it in your purse or pocket where they might find it. Well, and it's the same thing with the marijuana gummies, right? If the if you've got those in your house, you've got to take the same care. And this comes down to people just protecting stuff. When I was a kid, and Lisa, surely when you were a kid, cigarettes were ubiquitous. They were everywhere, mm-hmm. you know? But I mean, you're, you're, my parents both smoked when I was a kid, but we knew you better not touch them. So. Well, that people kept them, you know, on the on the coffee table in like a box or a cigarette <laughs> dispenser. So it was really easy to steal them. There were ashtrays everywhere when we were growing up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Barbie was the story of the summer and we'll likely see a whole lot of pink on Halloween night. That's in a week and a half. But Barbie is also a museum exhibit in Ohio, believe it or not. Susan Glazer checked it out. What did she find, Laura? This is at COSI in Columbus, which is a great science museum. And Barbie's 200 careers throughout her 64-year life are on display there, from nurse to pilot to president. And not only can you see the dolls, like there's a large collection of that, but you can see the real-life heroes who inspired the dolls. And you can try to act them out. So you can take the podium as the president. You could try to fly a plane. And it's a Mostly for kids ten, 10 and under, but they can, you know, jump inside a toy Jeep and pretend to be a wildlife photographer or test out their balance on a surfboard. So it's a way to explore all sorts of careers through the Barbie lens. You'd have to have a kid that was super Barbie crazy to drive two hours from here to attend that exhibit, right? Well, I think part of Coast, you know, if you're going to Columbus anyway, and a lot of people do, and they go to the American Girl Museum, um, I want to call it a museum. It feels like a museum, but it's a store. Uh, if you're going to go down there anyway, it's a great thing to do with your kids. My sister lived in Columbus for a long time and had a COSI membership. So I used to go there with my kids pretty often. When I was a kid, actually, COSI was downtown Columbus. And they had sleepovers for Girl Scouts. So I went once a year and we'd like stay up and be in the museum all night, which was really cool. I don't know if they do that anymore. But if you're in the Columbus area, you're looking for something to do with your kids over a break this fall or winter, I think it would be um, a really fun one. Okay. 
That's it for today in Ohio for the week. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Leila. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We will return on Monday with Wait, another. We, we won't not. return on Monday. Oh, that's right. I forgot. We are going to have to skip Monday because there's so many commitments. We will return on Tuesday. Thank you, Lisa. That would have been a big mistake. Talk to you Tuesday. Tuesday.